Welcome back to Dystopia and Catastrophe. This is going to be our first episode covering One Second After. I want to thank you for joining me on this discussion. Uh, this is going to be a interesting exploration into a serious national security issue, potential catastrophe. God forbid this ever happened, because this would be probably the worst thing that ever happened to us. So I'll just uh, I'll just get into it right out of the gate. We're going to be covering chapters one and two in this episode and reacting to what we see in this image that's being painted here. And it's a good image. William Fortune is a fantastic writer. I'm going to get that right out there. He's one of the best writers, as far as fiction writing and storytelling, one of the best that I have ever read. Uh, this, uh, this book ranks right up there with some of my favorite books that I've, that I've read in my life, as far as, again, fiction books. Very, very good. Expertly written. Great storytelling. It paints a clear picture. I can see the images as he describes them on the page. It's very well done. So this, um, the story takes place in North Carolina, up in the hills and the hollers of North Carolina, as I call it. So they're up in the mountains. Uh, the actual location is called Black Mountain. But as he describes this, you know, I think of uh, rural countryside, small town, in the book, it's described as kind of a Norman Rockwell painting, and I think he uses that descriptor to paint that very clear picture that this is a classic American town. I have grown up near towns like that, so I know exactly what he's talking about, I think, basically, based on what he describes. And he describes a situation where you kind of got the locals out there in the hills and the hollers, and then you've got the tourists who come up from the big cities, be it Charlotte, Raleigh, Asheville, places like that. These towns that are described as being... Uh, some some close, like Asheville, not too far away, and then obviously the bigger cities much further down the road. The story starts off kind of in the middle of the day, 2.30 p.m., you know, and, you know, one of the more ominous things, I mean, you, you have this great description of a small town, Norman Rockwell, great people, small community, everybody knows everybody, kind of, sort of, but right at the beginning of the book, you have this quote up at the top, and it says, for I have become death, the destroyer of worlds. A clear reference to Robert Oppenheimer when he said that about some of his thoughts testing and building the atomic bomb. So we know that there's going to be an atomic bomb involved in this story, obviously. So as you read the story, you understand just—I'll go over the basics, you know, just so we're all on the same page here. There's the protagonist of the story. That's John. He's got a, a family. His wife died some years ago. But he's got two daughters, one twelve and one sixteen. And his youngest daughter is, uh, I believe, type 1 diabetes. Uh, it's a health issue. They reveal that fairly early on, and it kind of takes on this ominous foreshadowing of things yet to come. A couple of dogs, you know, like a—he describes it like a standard American family, really. The uh, professor here, and that's what he is. He's a professor at a local college, obviously. I'm sure you know that already. But it, I like the way William Fortune describes this guy— He's a former military man. I can identify with that. I come from a military family. Both of my parents were in the United States Army. Very proud of my parents for their military service and for their hard work. Some of the hardest working people I ever knew in my life was my parents. And they got that um, hard work ethic long before they ever went into the military. They both grew up on farms back in the day. Uh, just for a point of reference, I'm, I'm a millennial. I'm an older. I'm one of the oldest millennials. I was born in the early 80s. So my parents go back to the 1950s when they were born. Growing up on a farm back then, especially back then, really hard work. You know, going through the 1960s and 70s on the farm, very tough work. But yes, our protagonist also is a former military man, and he's a, he's a history buff. You know, he's a history professor, right? 
He knows a lot about history, studies history, lectures, and I can really identify with that because I am a history enthusiast as well. I do not have a history degree. I have an accounting degree, but, you know, I've studied history most of my life, so I can really identify with the character here. I really can. I find it... um, very recognizable. They, they describes this bookshelf that the that the good professor has. It's like this floor to ceiling bookshelf uh, full of history books and other things. And I don't have a bookshelf quite that sizable, but I I do have a bookshelf. And honestly, most of my books don't fit on the bookshelf. I have to put them in boxes and storage crates and stuff like that. But I recognize that lifestyle, and that's that's why I do my other podcast too. My other podcast is very much a history podcast, so I think I'm at least in the same neighborhood as uh. The good professor here, if not uh, if not on the same level, certainly not on the same level, because he t- uh, obviously history professors take it to take it to the extreme with their uh, their study of history and the time and energy that they put into that. That's their lifestyle, you know. And it, it talks about his background a little bit. His wife, uh, of course. Um, if you've read the book, I'm sure you know the backstory there. I won't dive too much into that. Uh, he does describe, you know, his military life, bouncing around from one military outpost to the next, be it, uh, I think he, I think it mentioned Japan and Germany, and he was in the first Gulf War, that kind of thing. When I was growing up, uh, my family were never, my, my parents, that is, were never deployed overseas in the military. We were only in the, uh, we, were, I, we were kept in the United States, which is, I, I, as far as I'm concerned, I'm fine with that. But I can, I can definitely identify with the moving around in the military scenario that's described here with the protagonist in the story, you know, from the other perspective, from the perspective of the child, because that's who I was when I, my parents were in the army. That that can be a tough life, you know, constantly moving around. But you learn a lot in the process. You really do. And you get to experience different things. And I think that can be helpful. So the basic background is an interesting one. We have ourselves kind of an all-American guy, former military history professor, Solid family, you know, except, of course, his wife is no longer no longer with him. And he lives in this Norman Rockwell-style town. So, I mean, this is a, really, this is the life right here. This is kind of the best that it could get under the, under the circumstances, considering his, uh, his wife had died. Obviously, you wouldn't want that to happen. But aside from that, just as far as, you know, where they live, how they live, kind of the lifestyle, it's, it's a good one. It's a good place to be. I think it's, it sounds like a great town. Good people. That's my perspective on it. So when the event happens, the uh, the event that kind of ends all of the good things that we hear described here, you know, as far as, you know, being able to continue this kind of lifestyle, the way it's described in the book I find interesting because, you know, if it ever happened, God forbid, it would happen suddenly. This is kind of the, the shock of it, the most insidious nature of it. I mean, in some respect, aside from the long-term consequences, it's just so sudden, and you don't really see it coming. It just kind of happens, literally at the snap of a finger. And that's terrifying in and of itself. It really is. And so he has a house kind of up on the up in the hills, just a, just a short ways outside of town, located next to an interstate. They're preparing for a party, you know, as described in the book. Normal day, great. It's supposed to be a great day. I mean, it's a birthday party for crying out loud. This is going to be a happy day, right? I mean, this is this is kind of the the cruel nature of this whole event, as described in the book, is it has to happen on this day of all days. It's almost like some kind of a sick, cruel joke that's not really a joke. And everybody kind of shows up at the house, you know, the family, including grandma. Grandma shows up at the house as well. And then, quite interestingly, the author stages the event during a phone call. And during a phone call, you know, one of the few phone calls probably taking place in the country at that time, 
where the person on the other end of the phone call might have a sudden realization as to what is actually happening during the phone call. And I think about that phone call as it's described. He's talking to an old military friend who's still in the military at the Pentagon. And I got to imagine, as soon as he starts connecting some dots, what the heck is going on on the other end of that phone call? What did they see that set them off? What is it that they saw at the Pentagon? What do you think they saw? Because clearly his friend on the other end of the phone knew something was happening. What was it? And it wasn't the, it wasn't the, um, it wasn't the actual final event itself, obviously, because that happens instantaneous, basically, the way I understand it. Tracking something on radar, perhaps. And there's going to be a deeper backstory here to be had sometime later on. But that's a heck of a phone call. I mean, it's, it's literally this man's last quote-unquote normal moment, like in the, in the modern world, takes place on a phone, and just in a conversation with a friend, and then suddenly something happens. But he doesn't really put it together. You know, the phone call ends. This is the thing that really kind of makes me think. Phone call ends, and at the exact same moment, the power goes out. And he probably thought, well, when the power went out, I mean, it's easy to think, like, when the power goes out, that's what disconnected the call. But what the heck was his friend doing on the other side of the phone? What was he all worked up about? And is there some coincidence that his friend is all worked up on the other end of the phone at the Pentagon, and then suddenly the lights go out? He doesn't really think much of it. And I wonder if I would put the pieces of the puzzle together at all. I, I honestly don't know the answer to that question. The normalcy bias tends to kick in. The normalcy bias is basically where you really tend to think of everything in a normal linear path. Like, today is going to be like tomorrow, this week is going to be like next week, this month is going to be kind of like next month. Things just kind of progress. And when you get locked into that mindset, you ignore red flags. Little warning signs around you that what's happening right now might not be like anything you've ever experienced before. And we begin to segue into chapter two of this book as the scene begins to unfold on day number one. Eventually, we get uh, he starts putting it together that the cell phones are out too. Batteries are dead. But he still doesn't quite piece it together. That the batteries are dead, not because the battery died and he just can't charge it because the electricity's out, but that it may have, it may have been fine, and then suddenly it went out with the, uh, with the power, which would signal something much worse than just the power going out. So the thing that, the thing that really begins to creep up on everybody is the silence, you know? And I, I kind of imagine that. It's like, you're going about your day, oh, the power's out, let's just keep going. Let's start preparing for a party or something. Let's start getting some stuff together. People are going to start showing up. And then eventually it strikes you as, you know, it's awful quiet out there. Number one, nobody's showing up to the party. But then there's just this kind of quiet that hangs over everything to do around the house, including the interstate nearby. And as you begin to notice, I mean, the evidence just piling up. I mean, I, I do wonder myself sometimes how much evidence would have to pile up for me to notice it. Would I kind of be thinking about it immediately? Would I, I hope, and I, by the way, I hope I never know the answer to this question, but put, I put myself in the place of the person in this story. It's like, when would you really begin to think about it? And how terrifying would that be as you begin to put the pieces together in your head? It's, it's honestly, it's hard to imagine because everything is just so terrifying about this particular kind of thing. You don't want to, you never want to go there. And it's probably the situation that he found himself in. It actually talks about the the book talks about that thought creeping up into his head, right? And as it as it's describing a kind of it's like a fleeting thought. He wants to kind of push it to the background and say, "No, that can't be it." That's kind of the feeling I get. But he starts to eventually he starts to investigate, and one of the things that becomes 
immediately clear is when he turns on the radio in the old car, the one car that's still working around the house. That would be the the 1960s vehicle, I think it was, or maybe it was the 1950s, the Ford Edsel. I can't remember what decade that car was made. It's an old one, though. Very unpopular car, the Edsel, by the way. But he's flipping through the AM radio dial, and he's got nothing. Just nothing. And it kind of takes me back to my days. I mean, people don't really play around with AM radio very much anymore, especially an old analog dial on an AM radio. I used to do that when I was a kid. I would listen to AM radio sometimes at night and try to scan through there and try and find radio stations that were really far away. Because AM radio is tricky that way. You can pick up, uh, I don't know whether it's atmospheric bounce or what, but you can pick up AM radio in odd places. And I used to play around with that when I was a kid. I don't know that kids do that very often anymore. I don't. Probably a lot of kids don't even know AM radio is a thing. Anybody else do that when you were a kid? Play with the AM radio dial? This is what we did when we were bored back in the 1980s and the early 90s in some cases. Exciting life, right? And imagine flipping through those dials and you got nothing. I mean, for your whole life, you, you turn on the AM radio and there's always something there. Always. It's kind of this reassurance, you know? If you got a storm shelter or something like that, you know, there's a storm, grab the radio, turn it on, you can listen to the, the weather report, right? But what happens when you turn that thing on? There's nothing. That would, be a, that would be terrifying in and of itself, just that one thing, let alone the never-ending string of things that are going on right now, the dead silence, the power's out, no AM radio. I mean, the list goes on. Cars aren't working now. He eventually starts putting it together that the cars have stopped. Why are the cars stopped? What's going on? That takes us down to the interstate. I mean, it doesn't take long for people to start getting an attitude, right? We see that at the interstate in Chapter 2. People already start getting impatient, getting an attitude. They start getting confrontational. So you can begin to see where this is going. Didn't take very long, just about an hour into it. That was quick. But actually, I want to know your opinion on that particular incident. Like when he's there at the interstate, you know, and he he could have tried to get uh, the character of Michaela over the fence. Should he have tried to do it or should he have left her there? I'd actually like to know your opinion about that. If you have an opinion, just uh, if you're over on Patreon, send me a message through Patreon. If you want to leave a review on Apple Podcasts and leave a comment about anything to do with Chapter 1, Chapter 2, let me know. Uh, your comments on, on what you've seen so far or what you, uh, what you think about what's developing here. Now we get to probably the most interesting part of all this when he really begins to put it together. you got to imagine when nighttime comes along. Everything is totally dark. And not just at his house, but across the whole town. You can, he, can look at, he can look outside and he can see that the lights in town are all off. And then, you know, sometimes you get that effect. You know, if you live not too far away, if there's a big city in the distance, you can see the sky lit up by the big city because there's so many lights, right? What happens when you don't see that? Everything's out. Everything's dark. Everything's quiet. The cars aren't moving. I think that's when it really starts to settle in that something has fundamentally gone wrong here. Mainly it's the cars, because that's that, that doesn't happen. That's the one thing that never happens. Cell phone batteries die. The power goes out sometimes. Sometimes there's blackouts across an area. Even the planes, sometimes they've been grounded. There's been a few instances of that, right? But what about the cars? The cars have never stopped moving before. Never. Not like that. And at some point in the night, he goes to his bookshelf and he pulls down this mysterious report. They never really do talk a lot about what is in the Mysterious Report, but it comes up a couple of times later. Uh, The first appearance of the Mysterious Report shows up in uh, Chapter 2. And it's interesting, the author doesn't really talk about it at all. It just describes he looks at it. And then the next thing he does is he goes and grabs a gun. 
You know, in this this kind of situation where you're you're in your house and you're worried about what's going on, you start getting concerned for safety, especially what what after what happened at the interstate, and you got to wonder about all those people out there. Who are they? And when they get confrontational or angry or belligerent, what are they going to try to do? I mean, this is the perfect evidence. This is a perfect walking advertisement for the Second Amendment, if ever there was one. The right to keep and bear arms for the defense of your house. Because what would happen if 30 people came off that interstate and decided to storm John's house? Wouldn't stand much of a chance without a firearm, right? Exactly. Keep that in mind. I mean, that's what goes through my head as I'm, as I'm understanding the story. And if you, uh, if, you don't, if you think different, then let me know. But, you know, as best as, uh, as best as described in the story, the children have no idea what's going on at this point. Not really. And that's kind of a testament to the characters in the story not freaking out, not going absolutely ballistic insane. You know, if John were freaking out and going crazy and going on about the end of the world or something, his kids would be terrified at this point. And that is effectively where we conclude Chapter 2. So I want to know what you think. If you have any questions or comments or thoughts about Chapter 2, or anything I didn't talk about that you would like me to talk about, go ahead and leave a comment or a review on Apple Podcasts. That's where I check for the reviews, or if you happen to be a subscriber over on Patreon, you can go over there and you can send a question through the Patreon. Uh, Do make sure if you, and by the way, in regards to the Patreon, you want to make sure and subscribe to the correct tier depending on what kind of access that you want to the podcast. There's going to be multiple tiers over there. Make sure and read the description on that. As of the time I'm recording this, I'm still in the process of setting that up. But just make sure and check on that if you have a question about it. You know, the $1 tier should still be up and running by the time this, uh, this first episode goes up. Now, if you're listening to this, you know, years later, it may not be. But for, as of the date I'm recording this, the Patreon, there's a, there's a tier over there that's just basically for Q&A, if that's all you want to do is just ask questions and so on and so forth. Ask a question through there, and I'll try to get to it. I, tend to, I prioritize the higher dollar tiers for questions first, and then I work my way down, obviously, just in case I get a lot of questions or I get overwhelmed with questions, which I doubt. But just in case, it's kind of an FYI. But uh, I certainly appreciate everybody subscribing, Apple Podcasts, or subscribing on Patreon. Much appreciated. And there is uh, there are bonus episodes available for subscribers, and I'll try to create a little bit more content available for those folks who do choose to subscribe as a thank you uh, to you folks for subscribing uh, to the podcast. I appreciate that, and specifically subscribing to the pay for content. Uh, so basically, if you have a paid for subscription, I build out a little bit of bonus material, extra content uh, again as a thank you just for doing that. So in the next episode, we're going to continue on, and we're going to take a look at chapter three. As things begin to develop, and I'll give you my reaction to what happens in uh, Chapter 3 and some of my thoughts around the, the events and the personalities and the characters and all that stuff. And I hope that you'll join me. And like I said, if you have anything you want to contribute to the podcast, please leave a review and a comment or go over to Patreon. And with all of that said, this is Roman signing off. Thank you. 